Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Ms. Marguerite Cato to our show. Ms. Cato is the Vice President of Lifelong Professional Learning at Northwestern Michigan College in Traverse City, Michigan. Hi, Marguerite. I'm so excited Hi, to have Dave. you on our podcast. Well, thank you. I am really thrilled uh, for the conversation ahead. So tell me about Northwestern Michigan College and why students select your institution. Absolutely. Um, Northwestern Michigan College in Traverse City was the first community college in the state chartered under the Community College Act in 1951. There were other junior colleges, but we were the first that was really built around college plus community. And um, some of what we do today is really in the spirit of what the community needed, a an encouragement for individuals to uh, access post-secondary education, incentives to connect employers and potential workforce through training on technical levels as well as transfer education, and the opportunity to build enrichment opportunities with an idea for lifelong learning, although that was not the language at the time. So, Today, we are very much that. We are a hub for programs and um, institutions within our college that are national level. Some are internationally recognized. We provide extraordinary transfer education. We are a hub for veterans. We are a powerful hub with extraordinary philanthropic support for those who are first time college bound from rural communities in our region. We're such a dispersed part in our geography of the state that we serve as a magnet um, and a highly collaborative institution with many others to meet all the vision of the community. So students who find us and students who select us, they come from every walk as they're starting a new part of their adventure. Uh, one of our oldest graduates several years ago was celebrating uh, 80 plus as a birthday when they received their associate degree. And some of our very, very young students are getting their associate degree hand in hand with a high school diploma. So it's, you know, all, all that gamut of schools, of uh, intentions. We are particularly strong in areas of innovative advanced technology curriculum. We have an emphasis area in technologies that support understanding the Great Lakes, freshwater, marine underwater technology applications, unmanned aerial applications. We have a state-of-the-art community college to baccalaureate aviation program. And we are the first of the Michigan community colleges that had full accreditation for its own bachelor's degree program, uh, maritime, Transportation, our Great Lakes Maritime Academy, one of seven in the country, on and on and on. So we have many, many proud firsts and uh, a very broad, wide open door for individuals to find us and to take that next step. You know, I, I don't talk to too many two-year colleges or community colleges that offer four-year degrees. So 
We're glad to be in, in, in company of lots of states that have uh, certainly been the pioneers. We are thrilled to be in the company of a group of, of colleges within our state that have taken that particular step. And we're very respectful of the boundaries that that represents and the responsibilities that we have. Again, these are uh, technical baccalaureates. They are in areas in which we have the unique expertise or the asset base in the state in order to provide quality bachelor's level programming. And again, um, it, uh, it's a pretty interesting level of investment, both in terms of the career pathway of faculty teaching in those programs, of our instructional leaders in those programs. And I am very pleased to say that the students who graduate from these in our particular areas, their current starting salaries are above $70,000 a year. These are extraordinary technical careers with huge opportunities for growth and leadership. They're fun, they're novel, they're interesting. Um, and uh, we're very, very proud of, of being able to deliver those. Well, you've used the word quality a few times. So, so what's your idea of quality when it pertains to community college education? Oh, that's an interesting and tricky question. Um, I would say that, let me break it out into two measures. One is our institutional measure um, and I may use some unconventional parameters in this, but I think when, when I talk about quality in the context of NMC specific programs, I am measuring that in terms of the professional preparation of the whole team that is assembled to design and teach. What are they to the industry or the profession? Are they innovators? Are they recognized? Are they champions? And have we prepared them to share that knowledge and experience with the next generation? That is a measure of quality. It is also an important measure that if we're going to position ourselves uh, to say that it's a quality experience, that our assets, our equipments, our laboratory, our infrastructure capacity is in fact of the same magnitude of investment and currency as we expect in the teams that are helping students find their way through. So those two institutional types of measures I would put together to say, yes, when we refer to programs of high quality, they meet those broad parameters. The other one, which is I think a measure of how the professional community views what we do is external to us. But the fact, as I used in the example of the bachelor's degree, that we can say it's 100% placement and these are the competitive salaries and they are asking us, can you produce more? That is that independent of us measure that those individuals have matured into where the profession needs to go. And that combination um, is extraordinarily powerful as we look at recruitment, and the longer term relationship we hope to have with our graduates, um, having them then reinvest their experiences back to improve what we do in our product line. So I, I would put those pieces together to form the whole. That, that's a great answer. <laughs> I think you did good on that one. <laughs> well, that was a tricky question, so thank you. <laughs> uh, what's new at Northwestern Michigan College? What's on the we, horizon? Uh, 
we are in the process of a comprehensive view of the next generation strategic plan for the college. We have a new president, Dr. Nick Nisley, who began January 1st of last year. And so he's, you know, we split his first year into the first 73 days, the COVID year, and now we're into a brand new uh, set of activities. So it, it will probably be an intro, a more an easier question to answer in two or three years by someone else who uh, will say, and this is the next new. This year, however, uh, we have opened up a new facility that is designed to encourage and accelerate ex the visible presence of experiential learning activities and to foster community business industry coming into our campus to do a bit of their work right alongside our students experimenting with new modes of learning um, along with their teaching teams and uh, faculty and teaching staff and all that whole piece. So we're trying to make experience-based learning more visible as a public as a public thing, something to be observed and for others to engage in with us. We are also uh, programmatically redesigning. Uh, we have strategic planning out here in the big backdrop and we have programs that we are redesigning to become better attuned to changes that our region is experiencing and that we think are beyond us and are part of the national change in industries that are post COVID. One of those is our Great Lakes Culinary Institute. It's a wonderful program with a great facility, but this is an area that's in tremendous upheaval. There are multiple places a program like this can go and we are interested in building out to our region, uh, a changing industry and to still maintain a pathway for the aspirations of students who wish to enter a thing in process. You know, it's, it's just a, uh, it's going to be a very, very different type of program. Our marine technology, which is one of our associate and bachelor's pieces has just received a very interesting piece of international accreditation. We are the only associate program that is recognized by the Marine Technology Society, which is an international program as being the valid, um, credential for workforce entry. And so that is, uh, that just happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that is going to be quite exciting for associate students as a step out. If they don't want to consider the baccalaureate right now, they can do so and they can do so with a clear employability pathway. And our students are working worldwide. We also continue in, um, we are ranked second of reporting community colleges in service to veteran students. And so that was reaffirmed this year. We're very proud of that. And our, uh, we have a fabulous museum. The Denos Museum Center is again uh, going through its museum accreditation process. And we expect that process to be done um, in the next year or so. What that provides is access to greater national exhibits and collections that are shared with institutions such as the Smithsonian, other arts museums, um, contemporary culture exhibitions, performances, etc., coming through to enrich the community. So along community learning, 
supportive students and professional technical programs, both existing and those that are to be created. We have quite a bit that we're going to see in the next year. And uh, so there's a lot to be looking forward to. Wow. Well, can you talk a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to become vice president of lifelong professional learning at Northwestern? I know people don't like to talk about themselves, but (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Uh, The division that I have been leading lifelong and professional learning, and we refer to it as our, by its letters, the LPL group. Uh, This portfolio was developed about 15 years ago to provide a pathway for what I would term as skunk works, both on the credit and the non-credit side to help accelerate program experimentation without a lot of our uh, core process in terms of uh, governance or in terms of other financial constraints or other pieces um, that sometimes slow down the evolution or the jumping ahead of of a linear path for program development. Uh, That really, this particular portfolio and my work in it uh, came about by what I loosely would think of in a 40-year career that I'm celebrating this year, four big chunks. I came to the college as an accidental adjunct instructor to fill an emergency gap uh, in in Spanish. And uh, had I didn't have a very clear idea of what a community college was. And I certainly had a very different idea of what I was going to be doing, which was not in a classroom, but would be in the field. Um, probably it, it shook me up a little bit to realize that 10 years had passed and all of a sudden I'm a faculty member, I'm chairing, co-chairing communications, theater speech, world languages, and I had to realize the odd thing that whatever I thought I was doing, it would be a metaphor for what I'm doing now, which was completely immersed in, in teaching and learning. Uh, I am, um, I am always, have always been, and will always continue to be a very curious person. And it gave me the opportunity to say yes to questions that were, hey, we have this opportunity. Marguerite, would you like to take a run at it? So my career is an unusual career. In 40 years, I have not had to stay in any particular lane that wasn't somewhat of my own design. Uh, what, What I became good at was being able to walk into experiments the college was conducting. So I left a full-time classroom to serve in the startup of a project that is now celebrating its 25th year, our NMC University Center. And we have many examples of community colleges building partnership homes for four-year schools to come and do degree completion at the baccalaureate or other. At that time, we were one of two places in Michigan experimenting with that model. And we had 13 post-secondary institutions that were physically trying to co-locate with us and more importantly, co-contribute slash not totally compete with each other. So building the the pathway for that level of inter-institutional collaboration 
was the work that I would do for the next five years. So everything I learned led me to saying, well, sure, I'll try that for the next question. And that led to the establishing of a division that would be just for the thing we did, build collaborative practice, build interdisciplinary practice and interinstitutional relationships and produce a product unique for student needs way, way ahead of the bell curve. So it's, that's been the history. Um, I have learned to do my homework seriously. So I, uh, as we started building out our Great Lakes Water Studies Institute, which uh, is one of my great pride and joy programs, I went back to school to make sure that I had the right professional orientation to the field if we were going to lay the groundwork for new degree work. And so that that just became the pattern. So I've been very, very fortunate that I could have an unconventional career pathway built out of uh, saying yes and not worrying very much about the details, knowing that I could do uh, the wide embrace of lots of other initiatives, find the leaders within those areas that are also curious and get stuff out of their way. I think that's a long roundabout way. It's hard to to say my career was stepped by a career plan uh, because that wasn't, it was, it's really been a career built around following students around and what are they curious about and what can we do better for them. And, um, and what I like about my story and sharing it is that I do believe that there isn't, there are opportunities for, for far more creativity, energy, happiness in community college administrative life when we find better ways to say yes and then empower others to act on yes to really create experiences that are rich and uh, sometimes on the edge and risky and bold because that that energizes students and when they're energized and when they're excited employers notice that and get excited and others notice that and get excited. Donors notice that and get excited. So that whole ecosystem of what makes us work as a community benefits from yes more than anything else. You know, you made a comment about LPL being, I don't want to say that you're fast tracking programs, but they, but they don't have to go through the traditional process of being through the shared governance process? Or can you explain that a little bit better? Because that's really a great concept. I, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> well, we're, let me put my disclaimer. I'm very respectful of shared governance. And, uh, and at the same time, my responsibility was to ensure that we were the smartest participants of our shared governance process in terms of uh, accelerating the time shortening the time from a program concept to the first course in a degree pathway already set for approval, accreditation if needed or other. So uh, our mantra was to start with the collaboration that you need to do precisely that, to be a fast moving piece. As my president at the time told me, your job is to push, pull, cajole, and as needed, break, and break open so we can do process improvement if things are taking too long. 
our strategy for that, uh, and it's always in the plural because I am simply the that first wedge to widen the door and make sure it's it's comfortable in both directions. So we would always start with with teams that would be in that governance role of check and balances, curriculum committee. We would start with curriculum committee before we had the first syllabus to say, we intend the following, here's why, here's what's driving it. Our resources are coming from the following places. And I'll talk about resources as a parentheses here. Part of our initial success was that our president set aside a fund at his discretion to help us be in a, to, to keep us from having to compete with limited general fund resources for new programming. And so um, the board approved early on in the development of this portfolio, a fund known as the Fund for Transformation and the Strategic Fund. They were by, uh, we would prepare our material for the president to evaluate, here's what we think this new degree piece will require. Here are the implications to sustainability. Here's the business model. Here's, here's our sketch. And our guess, based on our research, is that we're 75% there. We may be 80% there. We don't know the other 20%. Are you good? And we would have a discussion with my peer senior leaders uh, to kind of make sure we knew. We broke all kinds of rules. We weren't always successful. We had to do some damage control every so often. But we just made governance constraints part of early definitions. We brought the teams along. So when when we came with the first certificate program in Marine, everybody was ready for us. And it was was astonishingly fast. Um, When we needed to uh, have board approval for new degree pathways or for significant investments, we had done all the work in the fastest way. And we came with broad representation to those meetings so they could see it's not one idea in a vacuum. This is a team-based effort and we're all gonna back that up. So we took pride in in being the smartest people about governance that we could be. We had our team members on every governance committee. We had shared intelligence. They knew where we were going. They may not understand it. They may not always agree with it. But uh, we worked fast because we brought everyone in early on and didn't have to explain it each time to a different committee in a sequence. And that's where you lose a lot of your momentum. It's that it's li- if it's linear, uh, you have to start the story all over again. And you can lose 18 months in that process. Uh, if we were too far afield, if we were really out of sync, our data was going to show us that we were out of sync and we could pull our programming back in and there were occasions when we were too far ahead and it did not make sense to anyone. And we listened to that too. If we don't know how to explain it easily and can't get a convert in the first half hour, then we're not ready. And uh, that was was just the art of the conversation that that let us push those boundaries the way we did. So, So when you said fast, I'm curious, what is the time frame of fast? A time frame of fast, uh, when we, I'll use the example of our uh, baccalaureate piece because that came in very recognizable stages and our test was the Higher Learning Commission. Uh, we were, for our 
uh, Maritime Academy portion, we were already uh, just a year away from teaching our own fourth year. We had a third party. It's it's uh, the Maritime Administration accredits that curriculum, and then the Higher Learning Commission comes in. We were ready to provide the evidence that was needed for accreditation in less than one year. And we had done all the work ahead of time. In the case of the Water Studies Institute, that was a from zero to full power program. And our first uh, turnaround in the um, curriculum committee side was done in under three months. And so uh, again, we, we were meticulous in the groundwork and we had their approval of where we were going with the associate degree before we had written the first semester's worth of new curriculum. So, so that three month turnaround showed us all that we can do it. And that's including the financial aid process. That's the advising and recruitment plan. That's everything. Um, so, so our measure of FAST is really, we were able to do so in short order that way. We have another program, Audio Technology. We started that as a uh, third party certification and later discovered uh, the value of trying to put it together in a certificate and an associate level program. And we had, it had taken us uh, probably two to three years to meet the, uh, inst the, um, the external endorsement process. And we had fatigued everyone going to the committees and well, now we're at step A, you know, step B, all of that. So the prep work for that took quite a while, but the degree creation piece for that and the certificate components, again, within a year, it was ready, ready to populate in its entirety with students. That's pretty good. I know when business and industry comes to colleges sometimes and they're all excited and then they can't understand it's been a couple of years. I still don't understand why this has happened. It's like, well, that, that's the that's the structure of the university or college system. You just you, it just doesn't happen tomorrow. So I'm I'm really intrigued in how you're doing that. That's good for you guys. Yeah, yeah, and and you know we do have we have places where um, we cannot meet the the constraints that a particular industry or a particular uh, piece has, and so one of our one of the the changes in our thinking that we've had to do, and it's not limited to the LPL group, but we certainly had to play around with that. If we can't provide it, what is our process for identifying the best provider that will work with us to meet that employer need? And so, you know, we often talk about uh, there's, there's governance as one set of mechanisms, and then there's partnership as a different set of mechanisms. Partnership, particularly I'm thinking of allied health-related programming, we have no way to provide the um, very costly certificate and associate-level programs that hospitals would be looking at left and right. But can we guide a conversation uh, with a primary employer and other providers so that we jointly mitigate cost, we jointly look at recruitment and 
persistence, completion, successful entry into the workforce? And can we meet all the accreditation standards uh, that are very complex and only growing in complexity? I certainly know that that for the future of the college is going to be an area where we're going to have to refresh and recommit as employers themselves are changing their strategies and what might have been a great pathway for someone in automotive technology may no longer exist and we have to create a totally different pathway and they expect us to be able to do it in less than a year. Um, We know it's not gonna take that. What's the intermediary step there? So it's more about being um, confident that you know your system well enough to know when it's not sufficient. And then that leads you to that next way of of response, which is partnership driven. Have you built enough relationships that you know who can help you build them faster? Because again, I I am not the one who owns the Rolodex. I have my part of it, (laughs) but I have a Rolodex of who has the rest of those contacts and can we make that work? And when, when none of that applies and, and we just can't make the connection between how you recruit, a, how do you interest someone, how is this what they're looking for that takes them to that pathway? And that's going to be a very big challenge for all of us in the next few years, just because of where we are with population and declining enrollments and, you know, recruitment. Um, how do you, how do you walk clearly and candidly with those for whom you can't answer the question and can't make the pathway so they understand why you can't, but they still want you to be that preferred first reference the next time around. That's in the art of those conversations. And it's all part of being able to, if you're gonna bend and break and create fresh rules, you have to be able to live with all these other pieces before you can't, where the resources aren't there or the scale makes no sense or, uh, you know, whatever those other contingencies that we all struggle with. Very innovative, very innovative. Uh, Let's change topics. Um, Let's talk about you. As you prepare (laughs) to retire after 40 years of service at Northwestern, what has been some of your proudest moments? Um, I, they come easily to mind. Um, I, I am the proud, you know, parent of lots of very successful professionals out there over the years. I follow their work. I am really proud when they say, you know, in your class, all those many years ago, there was this one lesson that has stuck with me for 25 or 30 years. So To be a teacher that is learning teaching with students and to have that that build a relationship that lasts through time is extraordinary. It's more powerful than many wonderful friendships. It's like having literally children. So I'm proud of students that I've taught that have been proud of the experience that they had. That is That's just really, really cool. Um, I'm very proud of of programs that I've been poetic about already and talked about water and and mixing art and technology and all that great stuff. Um, I, I take great heart that it is possible to build 
such deep relationships over time because of our mission. And, I, you know, I, I don't see myself as I think I had said uh, earlier, the word retirement is not, does not fit me or my mindset. So it's sort of rethinking. Um, I like that uh, the mission of my work, the mission of the community college and ours in particular um, had, there's nothing, it, it just filled everything. It gave purpose to every day. And it, is, it has been rewarding to look back and say, I didn't have a day that I thought I didn't contribute something or that I wasn't the beneficiary of something that came out of that. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of things that aren't even here anymore. At one time we developed a certificate, uh, the state of Michigan opened an apprenticeship program and we were able to build two cohorts of um, a theater technology internship with our community playhouse. And uh, I have the programs of performances that were done, beautiful plays that were put on with the acknowledgement in small print of all our interns who learned lighting design. And so to play in arts and to play in science and to be able to uh, contribute in the community as a, as a community member with, with the reputation of the college behind me have all been fabulous, fabulous things. I'm proud of all of it. I didn't have a bad day. <laughs> well, you know, it's obvious that you're in the heart of a lot of students. And so, and, and I know you, you sure, sure come across as somebody who just adores the students that you've, you've been involved with for 40 years. So let's talk about uh, kind of, this might be an odd question for you, but um, what's your most memorable conversation you've ever had with a student at Northwestern? Um, I, it was my first week at the university center, uh, which is its own campus. And, and again, I'm, I'm nowhere near main campus right now. I'm at the UC campus. It's lunch and I'm the only person there. And a young woman kind of bounces in. She it doesn't even glance up at me. She's in a rush and she's asking for a pen, pulls out her checkbook and she's writing a check. And she tells me her story for, quickly, I say, well, how can I help you? She says, can you give this check to the right person? And said, who would the right person be? Um, so her story is uh, her, she came back to finish a bachelor's degree, had an NMC associate. Her boss encourages her to this new thing, go finish your bachelor's across the road. And when you finish it, I'm going to give you a raise. And that's your incentive to go finish this degree. So she is running in to write a check for the amount of that raise that she got. And she said, I don't know who this goes to, but someone wrote a scholarship check for me to be able to do this. My boss is supporting me to be able to do this. And it's the least I can do to pay it back. And just like that, she left. So uh, I'm always caught up with the emotion of that story because for all I thought, 
that we were doing and for all that in my head was our purpose and our mission. Until that student tells you and acts upon, and this is what I'm doing because of that. This is my simplest way to say thank you and let me pass it on. You sometimes, it's just in our head. I don't know what it, I don't know what she gave up to write that check. I don't know who she had to set aside to do that work and finish it. But here it is, her first thought is to help someone else do that. I, I got it. That was the moment when mission became really crystal clear. Whatever it is that I'm doing as an educator, it is to make it possible for someone to feel so deeply about our commitment to them that they feel a commitment to someone they're never going to meet, perhaps, have no idea. If we're doing that in public education, if we're doing that in the community colleges, we're doing our best work every day. And, and yeah, it's a student-centered story. It's the most important quasi-conversation. It wasn't really a chat. It was an act. And I got to be the witness of the act. Wow. What a story. Um, before we look for answers, we need to make sure that we ask the right questions in higher ed. So what questions do you think need to be asked regarding the future of higher education? Um, it's interesting that I think there are some questions that are the same. I, I'm so intrigued as I look ahead at, as to how we're going to call 2020. And there are questions that we may not have to answer very quickly. My question, my most urgent question, I think has been building up to be the most urgent question. Um, retaining, but retaining nurtured leadership in our community colleges will, that is going to be lifeline for the future of community colleges. And it's gonna be a lifeline for the future of post-secondary institutions across the board. <clears throat> there is so much mobility that schools are going to be challenged by the loss of intellectual knowledge of organizational memory. Uh, but it takes a lot of investment to build leaders. It's a personal investment matched by an institutional commitment. And so as institutions and as leaders, what's our, what's, what do we think is at stake in nurturing professional development, nurturing the institution's leveraging of that more developed leader, perhaps to stay a little longer, to view career not as ascending the pyramid, but as really defining a place where they are in true control of all the talent that they have and understand and are free to deploy that talent. Where do we cultivate those next innovators, those uh, rule benders, breakers, those fearless people? How do we keep them and how do we keep them fearless? Uh, as we look at constraints on budgets, as we look at changing and probably increasing regulatory pressure left and right, what becomes the thing that keeps good talent energized and committed to a mission that moves you the way 
that one story moves me every time I tell it. So that is, that's not going to be an issue of salary. It's not going to be an issue of career mobility, whatever that means in the next generation. It is about creating satisfaction in practice, um, more joy and happiness in practice. And I mean it in terms of people feeling um, mirthful and able to express the joy of practice, much more so than always commiserating on the difficulty and challenge of practice. Where do we open that as the better behavior in our leaders and by our institutions? I think that's going to be so crucial because our differentiating factor over time is not necessarily going to be our curriculum. It will be the climate in which students um, see very clearly what motivates us. And that becomes the attractor. Mm. It's going to be very, very interesting out there. I would look forward to seeing the next 20 years of adventure for community colleges. Uh, but I do think that the schools that are going to be perhaps most satisfied are the ones that choose to be happier in the way they practice and are visible in investing in leaders and then retaining leaders. And I know that sounds somewhat counter-conventional to all kinds of stuff in, in you know, the leadership panorama. We're training people to move and to be mobile and, and we say that that's valuable. But mobility is always a trade-off and you bring new energy and new interest but history of an institution matters. Its cultural continuity is valuable and matters. And particularly in community colleges in which that continuity has to connect with the evolution of the community itself, there has to be something that, that stays in sync. And uh, fatigue isn't that. Uh, joy is much more that. So here's my last question for you today. What are your future plans as you transition into the next chapter of your life post-retirement? And I'm sorry I use that word. The R. <laughs> um, I have a couple of projects that are I am so excited to be able to return to. I've kind of stayed, I've been a good observer. I am particularly interested in, in doing some additional work with non-English speaking adult learners and how they find their way to connect uh, both into community learning resources and institutions such as community colleges. Uh, we live in an agricultural region. I have had lots of uh, very interesting experiences working around the training needs and the development of individuals who by all kinds of historic and economic pathways aren't in your place long enough to necessarily acquire an associate degree or a bachelor's, but there has to be commitment by a community to ensure that we're providing outreach services and support. So I, I, I see myself getting very involved in something that takes me to the beginning, agricultural work, language-based um, and empowering non-English speaking learners to find their place and, and take advantage of extraordinary opportunities by coaching and other. So I, I plan to play in that arena a little bit. I will stay walk close to our programs in water, perhaps uh, get a chance to come back as an advisory board member and um, help them uh, with irreverent stories about to break cycles of you know, timing and 
schedules and things like that and move their programs even forward. And uh, I, I had an opportunity this year to <clears throat> serve as the lead translator into Spanish of an extraordinary multimedia artwork that will be um, exhibited this fall at our museum. And so I've rekindled an enjoyment of uh, the side of my brain that works in language and literature and um, it'll be fun. So I have a lot of interesting projects out there. I serve on the state board of our extension council and that will run for several more years. So I'll be very close to the um, academic themes and topics that were mine as a student and that I've always stayed close to, which is soil, land, and uh, the people that live on it. So it sounds like the future plans are you're staying really busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I plan to. I don't know how to do it any other way. <laughs> well, Marguerite, thank you so much for being our on our show today. It, it was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed our really enjoyed it. Well, and thank you, Dave. You're doing something really uh, rare and wonderful in the world, even of podcasts, but certainly in the area of education, which is giving us a space to talk and think through the who we are that has kept us um, excited about the work we do. And so that's an important space. And thank you for uh, making that space available and, and uh, letting us uh, play in there with you. So I appreciate that. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.